We're going to talk about the light of the world. Open your Bibles to John chapter 8. And we're in a series this December called There's Just Something About Christmas. You know, what is it about these 25 days of December that are different from the rest of every other month in the year? It's just remarkable. We sing songs like that, not only in church, but in our cars, maybe the shower, shopping malls, the same songs over and over again. I'll talk about that next week. There's almost a million Christmas songs in all their varieties. It's astounding. There's more songs about Jesus than anyone who's ever lived. Uh, that'll be fascinating next week when we look into it. Uh, why do we give gifts to one another? Why do we give candy and celebrations? Why are there endless brunches and dinners and office parties? You know, they talk about the freshman 15 when you go to college. I feel like I'm getting the Christmas 15 this season, right? Everywhere you go, everybody's desk, there's just cakes and cookies. Why is there so much optimism? Why is everybody so generous? Why is it, as they say, the most wonderful time of the year? And, and to, to answer that, you have to understand, for it to be like this, something must have happened. Okay, this doesn't just happen. This is a worldwide celebration. There is no worldwide religious celebration like this. So something serious must have happened at some point in history. And as Christians, we know what it was. There was a time when God, the creator, stepped into our story, stepped into creation. The creator became the creation. You know, we call it the incarnation that God became one of us, that God became a man. Uh, it's called the mystery of godliness because just when you think you understand it, you find out there's a lot you don't understand about it. That God was veiled in human flesh and blood. It's so hard to comprehend. Born in a manger, born in poverty, born, as we just sang in the song, that he may die. And so Christmas, this is what's important, made Easter possible. Jesus came, God came to be a sacrifice for us, and therefore Easter makes Christmas, what we're studying now, so meaningful. The question is, was it December 25th? I'll answer that in a few minutes. Uh, it's not really important, but I, you know, I'll give you some stuff to talk about at your dinner celebrations and with your friends, and you can look real smart later. Um, week one, we looked at gift giving and how that was scriptural. Week two, we talked about joy and relationships. Uh, I'm excited today to talk about something that seems trivial, but it's really important, and that's lights, Christmas lights. Uh, it's pretty remarkable for these 25 days of the year to drive through neighborhoods and just see lit trees and lit homes, and you go through shops, and everything's lit, and people's homes inside their fireplaces, and there's just something special. It brings something out. It feels like something's festive. Uh, look up on the screen. One of the most famous lights is Rockefeller Center, right? We make pilgrimages there every so often. I've never been to Paris at Christmas. I've been there in the summer, and at night it's quite spectacular. It's a city of blinding lights. Can't imagine Christmas there. Uh, this is Longwood Gardens. They claim they have six million lights right up the street from us. Pretty profound. Um, this past week, we had our winter celebration for Innovate, our Christian school, which has more than doubled. We packed the chapel upstairs. And look, the kids did candle lighting. We did that for 15 years before it became a fire hazard. And so now what we do, if you come Christmas Eve, we'll use our lights on our phone, our flashlights, and kind of feels almost the same without lighting somebody's hair up in front of you. But, um, and then there's always this one guy in the street, I hate guys like this, uh, maybe girls, uh, the big shot on the street who has to go all out and you know cars line up and he blocks traffic because uh, he does this. And um, the reason I hate guys like this is I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum, right? 
I have these wonderful ideas of what to do at my house, but then I go down into my basement and find out what I really have. You ever see that? Um, I pull out all the lights, and you know the drill. I used to put them up first. I learned my lesson. Plug them in before you put them up. And you know the drill. Half of them work, half don't work. Some are blinking, some aren't blinking. And then to kind of be like a manly guy, because I'm not that handy, I would run out and buy the replacement bulbs. You ever try that one? So now I've got a bag of replacements, and they don't fit, and nothing works, and I want to throw the whole thing in the trash every year. And you keep asking yourself, why do we do this? Why do we do this thing for 25 days? Uh, Maya Angelou said, you can tell a lot about a person the way they deal with three things, a rainy day, lost luggage, and tangled Christmas lights. <laughs> but we come back and we do it every year. Why do we do it? Nobody thinks about why we do it. Well, two people that really blazed the trail couldn't have been farther on the end of the spectrum, and this is the way Christmas works. It's really a mixed bag. For everything that's spiritual, there's something pagan. For everything spiritual, there's something commercial. But the two men who get the most credit are Martin Luther, the monk and the reformer, and Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison invents the light bulb uh, in 1878. The following year in his Palo Alto office, he strung up what we would call Christmas lights as an advertisement uh, for the light bulb he just invented. Now his partner took it to New York City, and that's how that tradition got going. And then by the end of the 1800s, Grover Cleveland, the president, inaugurated the lighting of the national Christmas tree. And that's where you get the modern day lights. But it was Martin Luther who, by the way, before his 95 thesis, before the Reformation, was a professor in Germany. He was unknown. In fact, on a list of 100 professors, top professors you can take in Germany, he wasn't even on the list. Uh, Ten years after the Reformation, He's, he's probably the first celebrity in the world. He's known all over Europe. But one day, Martin Luther's walking through uh, a village, and it's a beautiful starry night at night, and he sees these trees covered with snow. And he gets this crazy idea that he's going to chop a tree down and try and recreate it in his house, and he brings it in his house, and they didn't have lights back then, so they put wax candles on it. Imagine that. Imagine wax candles on a tree inside your home today. Uh, not a great idea. Uh, but that was his idea of, well, right in the heart of winter, this is the birth of Christ. And he drew his inspiration from the text I asked you to turn to, John chapter 8, where in verse 12, right after Jesus tells the woman caught in adultery that he doesn't condemn her, he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. There's a promise there for you and me. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. By the way, uh, you know, you have to look at Jesus with fresh eyes every once in a while. He's in the court of the women in the temple. They've just finished tabernacles, and he stands up to all these people listening and says, I am the light of the world. You've got to be kidding. Are you serious? You're the light of the world? I mean, that stuff either gets you locked up or put in a cuckoo bin, or, I mean, you just don't say things like that. And not only would Jesus say that, six other times he would say, I am the door, I am the great shepherd. And he was drawing us back to that infamous scene where Moses said in the burning bush to God, you know, God, what is your name? People are going to want to know your name. And God said, I am that I am. I'm the becoming one. I'm all that you need. And so seven times Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the door. Declaring to his followers that he was God in the flesh. Now, the idea of light is very what we call Johnian. John chapter 1, 
He talks about light. John chapter 8. In 1 John, John says God is love. What a brilliant description of God. What that means is, it doesn't mean that God is loving. It means more than that. It means it's the essence to his core. It means there's never a time where God is not love or acts in love. We know God is holy, but then John goes on to say God is light. Now, it's not sunlight. It's not the sun. There's that ridiculous question about in the creation that God said, let there be light, but we didn't get the sun until a few days later. You you all understand God doesn't need the sun for light, right? In in Revelation, there's no night there. I don't think we're going to have the planets like we have them now. And yet, you know, God is light. So light is different than sunlight. You have to understand that. You know, light can bend. It goes, you, you understand how fast it is. There's, there's a marked difference between what you think is sunlight and what light really is as a property. But God is love. God is light. What John is trying to communicate is Jesus is God. That's all the gospel of John. Now, John's Christmas story is in John chapter 1. No manger, no inn. No swaddling clothes. You know, Luke gives us that wonderful historical narrative. Instead, John says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and darkness did not comprehend it. John is saying, This is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is the God who existed before creation. And when God created the world, when he created something out of nothing, Latin, ex nihilo, Jesus was there. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all of God. So when God said, let there be light, Jesus was there. Proverbs 8, he was the master craftsman right beside him. But it says, in him was light, and light was the life of men. Think of that. The life we were given comes from the light of God. This is very, very important. Um, Jesus is the creator, sustainer of the universe. Paul talks about that in Colossians. He's holding the worlds together by the word of his power. So when God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul, there was Jesus. He was part of that breathing of life, the light of men. It made human beings distinct from anything on this planet, anything created above or below the earth. Now, John is the only one to call Jesus the Word. And this was strategic, and it's by the Holy Spirit. When he says in the beginning was the Word, uh, the Greeks, this is the logos, right? So for Greek philosophers, the logos was the rationale for life. I know this is a lot for 9 in the morning. Or it's 11, sorry, we're in another service. Uh, (laughs) The Lagos was the rationale for life. This is what they believed. They believed that if there was a thing, then there was a thinker, okay? If, there, if something existed, there was a thought. And when he said Jesus was the word, he was taking a step further and saying, no, there's a thing, there's a thought, there's a thinker, there's a designer. If there's a law, there's a lawgiver is the idea. So Jesus is the rationale for life. He's the reason, as we say, for the season. He's the pre-existent one. Uh, We were at a fundraiser in Dallas for Steve Ruiz, Water is Basic, and we had a free day. And uh, if you give me a free day, you might not know this about me, Uh, I like to go to zoos. I'm like a zoo connoisseur. 
I added it up last night. I've been to 17 or 18 different zoos, and I can tell you all the great habitats. And um, So we're in Dallas, and I thought, all right, let's go to the Dallas Zoo, and everybody agreed. And somebody's lady said, uh, you know, you should go to the Fort Worth Zoo. It's only 20 more minutes. It's the number three zoo in America. And I'm like, wow, I've been to, you know, San Diego Zoo. I've been to the biblical zoo in Jerusalem. Uh, yeah, let's go to the Fort Worth. And we go there, it's 2 in the afternoon. If you know anything about zoos, you're supposed to go in the morning before the animals eat. But at 2, they're generally sleeping. So I said, guys, this isn't going to be as great as it's been made out to be. Well, boy, was I wrong. We get to the first exhibit, the primates. There's monkeys and gorillas there. And we were there for an hour, 15 minutes. The little kids were doing flips. The little kid monkeys are doing flips. And the parents are engaged. And I mean, we were all in. Uh, next stop we go, another hour, the orangutans. And uh, naturalists tell us orangutans have the closest resemblance to the things we do as humans. And so in my backpack, I had Cheez-Its. And I'm sure you're not supposed to do this. <laughs> but there was an orangutan standing right down, you know, I could see him right down there on the precipice. So I threw him a Cheez-It and he caught it. <laughs> so I threw another one, he ran over and got it. And then he went like this to me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And um, so someone in our party said, uh, Pastor Bob, I know you're not going to like this because I know what you believe, but man, do they look like us. And, and I thought about worldview. I thought, you know, if somebody tells you about evolution, if somebody tells you you come from monkeys, and then you see something like that, then you're going to put the pieces together and say, well, this looks like it really may have happened. But think about the other worldview, that we were created in the image of God, that we are unique, right? That we were crafted in our mother's womb, that we were special and unique part of God's creation. You know how I look at it? I look at it like, God, you're amazing. You gave us something really close to us to show us what we would look like if you never breathed life into us and we never had the light of men. God, you're really amazing. And so I turned to that person and I said, they look like us, huh? I said, I guess the only thing missing is Shakespeare and Michelangelo and LeBron James and my mom and your dad and our kids and all the great love stories and great sentences and language and mathematics and E equals MC squared. Do you all get the idea? I don't care if a zillion years went by, that orangutan's never writing Beethoven. It's never going to happen. And by the way, it's not a dumb question. Why are there still orangutans? That's not a dumb question. No one's still answered that for me. And maybe I'll get all your emails, so maybe I'll learn something this week. <laughs> we are living, breathing human beings through our spirit, soul, and body. We are the apple of God's eye. The Bible says we are lower than the angels. Think about that. We're lower than the angels. We're not in the spirit realm yet but we're higher than the animals. There's something about us that says even the angels, they scratch their heads. They, they long to look in to why God deals with us, why he has placed us to the height of creation. We are the apple of his eye. And the light that we've been giving, the, the breath that was put in us, here's, here's the drill. Light is all about truth. Notice the metaphors here. Light separates darkness, even in the creation. So the idea that we have the light of life and we follow Jesus is the idea that for the first time, we've been bought into truth. 
Uh, there's an old saying, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. Be careful about saying that. We're just forgiven? That's all it is? Like, that's a pretty tall task, right? But it's true, we're not perfect, nor will we ever be. But the idea is, we are they that have come into the light. So here's the beauty about our faith. Listen, we may die young. We may live long lives. We may never get sick. We may get cancer. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. We're not perfect. We're not going to live perfect lives. Here's what's important. We know the truth. It's an anchor to our soul. I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. Jesus talked a lot about heaven. I know I'm going there. Paul saw the third heaven. Now, Billy Graham was once asked, when you die, are you going to heaven? And he says, I hope so. And the interviewer said, wait a second, you've preached to more people than Jesus. And you've told people they can be born again if they say this prayer and blah, blah, blah. He said, look, I know where I'm going. I've just never done it. And, that, and that's really how it fleshes out, right? We've never done it before. But we know where we came from. We know where we're going. We understand what life is like. Before you were a Christian, you lived in darkness. You didn't know how life works. You didn't understand life. We were doing what everybody else was doing, going for the gusto, climbing, climbing the ladder of success. Now we know our life doesn't consist of the things we possess. We know life is more than eating and drinking and being married. We, listen, carpe diem sees the day. Look, I believe more than anybody that we should get the most out of the day. But carpe diem is an idea that you have an allotment of time, it's going to run out, and you're done. So you better seize the day. Now, I think we should seize the day in, in God's stead, but I'm not running out of time. I'm going to live forever. So these wonderful truths that we live in, Jesus said, listen, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Every other religious leader, philosopher, or secular person who's come along has shown us the way to God or the way to the great life or the truth or the secret of life. Jesus said, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the rationale. He's the reason for the season. And so we are they that live in truth. We live in the light. It's a beautiful thing. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal two Saturdays ago don't believe in God, question mark, then lie to your children. This was done by a therapist who, like all of us, was wondering why children and teenagers in our day and age have a heightened level of anxiety and depression. We've never seen anything like this as early as eight years old. So this woman looked at a Harvard 2018 study of the effects of religious or spiritual beliefs have on mental health. Um, they examined 5,000 children in a controlled environment. The, the result was children or teens who reported attending a religious service at least once per week scored higher on psychological well-being measurements and had lower risks of mental illness. Weekly attendance was associated with higher rates of volunteering, a sense of mission, forgiveness, lower probabilities of drug use, and early sexual initiation. Uh, she then laments the idea that church attendance is down 20%, and half of all 30-year-olds have no church affiliation. I'm often asked by parents, how do I talk to my child about death if I don't believe in God or in heaven? The answer of this therapist, lie. 
The idea that you simply die and turn to dust may work for you, but it doesn't help children. Belief in heaven helps them grapple with this tremendous and incomprehensible loss. In an age of broken families, distracted parents, school violence, nightmarish global warming predictions, imagination plays a big part of a children's ability to cope. Today, the U.S. is a, is a competitive, scary, and stressful place that idealizes perfectionism, materialism, selfishness, and virtual rather than real human connection. Religion is the best bulwark against this kind of society. Spiritual belief and practice reinforce collective kindness, empathy, gratitude, and real connection. Whether children choose to continue to practice adults is something out of a parent's control, but that spiritual or religious center will benefit them, this author says, the rest of their lives. So this therapist is saying, look, even if you don't believe it all, do it, because it's healthy. Now, we understand why, right? Because this is the way we were made. This is the way we were designed. There is a capacity in every human being to relate to God. You know, I believe Adam and Eve were light bearers. I believe there was a form of light where they bared, reflected the light of God. I think their communication was at a level we'll experience when, when, when we go home to be with God or in the millennium or whenever. And so we have this capacity. What Solomon says is eternity in our hearts. There's, there's this capacity to communicate with God. It's out of the five physical sense, senses. And so when you don't act that way, life goes awry. That's why you could have everything and be lonely, everything and not be fulfilled. The book of Ecclesiastes, believe it or not, is one of the most profound books of all literature. And in that book, Solomon, who had everything, the king in Israel, he had palaces and gold and 600 concubines. I mean, we could go on and on. Most of you know the story. He said it was all vanity and all chasing after the wind. Every time I read that, I think about my kids and now my grandson, Declan, you ever buy the soap bubbles for kids? And you blow the bubbles, and they love to go get them, and then there's always that time, it's a great life lesson, where they get the bubble and they can't keep it. And Solomon said, that's what life's like. You get there, and you get it, and you only have it for a little while. And then Jesus said, it doesn't bring lasting fulfillment. Man doesn't live by bread alone. He doesn't live by material things, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, when Jesus said he was the light of the world, he was in the temple. John tells us it was the Feast of Dedication, Tabernacles. And it was the end of the feast. And on the final day of the feast, as the priest was pouring out a water libation, Jesus said, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me, and I will give him rivers of living water, come out of his being. Now, the feast being over, he's in the court of the women where the treasury was. There would be large chests there. This is where the woman put her last two mites. But for the feast, they would have been illuminated. It would have been grand for tabernacles. Now the lights are gone out. And what Jesus is saying is, look, Judaism is over. The water libation is over. The temple's not lit anymore. The, the holy of holies is empty. The water pots at the wedding were empty. The whole idea was this is an empty system, and I've come to replace it with something that will be self-fulfilling, and that you'll never run out of. I have come to bring new wine and water where you'll never thirst again, and light that you will always walk in truth. And then this is what he said. 
you are now the light of the world. The light God put in us, you are now the light of the world. He was the light of the world, now you're the light of the world. And this is why we do candlelight on Christmas. Every year I would do this. I would have them turn the house lights down, and I'd say, okay, now light your candles. And then look around the room, how the room has lit up. And what I'm trying to show you is sometimes you think life is dark. Sometimes you think no one's a Christian. But when the lights come on, you see what God is doing. And you see the impact we can have. And for 2,000 years, we've been a light in a very dark world. In fact, we've been such a light. DJ D. James Kennedy wrote a book years ago called, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? What if there was never a Christmas? First of all, it would be a drag today. Can you imagine a year without Christmas? That's a drag. Would you imagine if there was never a Christmas? God never stepped into history. And we could argue this out. Would this have happened? Maybe it would have. But if you, if you take Jesus with a giant metal a magnet and like scrap metal remove everything that his people have done in his name, there's not a lot left. Kennedy gives a list. Hospitals, which essentially began in the Middle Ages. Before that time, if you were rich, you had a personal physician. Luke, the author of Luke and Acts, Theophilus, uh, he was his personal uh, physician. Uh, hospitals were started for poor people. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. The remarkable thing about Jesus' ministry is he elevated the poor. He was born poor, in a stable. He came from Nazareth. Until that time, most religion was for the rich. In Corinth and Ephesus, these grand temples, was all for the rich. Hospitals, universities, again, Middle Ages, many of the world's leading universities, Oxford, Cambridge, all the Ivy League schools, all started by Christians, many of them for raising up ministers to preach the gospel. Literacy and education for the masses, the pub public schools came about because Sunday schools gave them that system, gave it to the government. How about this one? You think this is relevant? Separation of powers in government, particularly our government. You know why? It was an ingenious idea because the founders believed we were inherently sinful. So they gave us checks and balances, not because democracy was great, but because we're sinful. And go home and watch the news tonight, and you'll see that we're sinful um, in our government. The abolition of slavery. Modern science. The elevation of women. Benevolence and charity. The Good Samaritan ethic. Jesus said, if you give a cup of cold water to someone in my name, if you visit in prison, you visit at me, so forth and so on. One person said, infidelity makes a great outcry about its philanthropy, but religion does the heavy lifting. The elevation of the common man. Condemnation of adultery, homosexuality, and other sexual perversions. High regard for human life. The civilizing of many barbarian and primitive cultures. Can you name a few? Can you name some barbarian cultures? How about England, France, Germany? The Germans were called barbars. They were barbarians. All of Europe, again, Christianized, elevated. The codifying and writing of many of the world's languages. The Irish saved civilization because monks sat in monasteries, and not only copied the Bible, but copied most of Western literature. We wouldn't have most of Western literature if it wasn't for monks copying those things. And everywhere the gospel has gone, it has stamped out 
animism and tribalism and many of the isms. For 2,000 years, the light that has come into the world has stamped out darkness. And so there's this beauty of light. Uh, do you ever drive through a very impoverished neighborhood? You almost see no Christmas lights because things are dark there. It's cold. John says the light dispelled the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. So how did the light come? Well, John gives us this 30,000-foot view. God, you know, the Word was God and with God. And, but it's Luke who gives us how the light came. And Luke was necessary because Luke's more of a historian. And he said, it came to pass in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that's Octavian, that all the world should be registered. The census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no room in the inn. Luke is one of the greatest historians of all antiquity, secular or sacred. He gives us more dates, more rulers, more cities than anybody that writes scripture. Why didn't he tell us if it was December 25th it was that important? He doesn't tell us. You know what he does tell us? That this baby was born physically, blood and guts. Like there was Braxton Hicks and transitions and umbilical cord and a midwife. This was dirty and it was human. Why? Because 750 years before Isaiah said, a virgin shall conceive and she will bring forth a son and it will be real. It'll be blood and guts flesh and we will call his name the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, Emmanuel, God with us. And Luke wants us to make sure that Jesus had human flesh, became just like us, one of us, all of God, all of man. So very important. And I look at this, I think, life is funny. There were so many people probably in Bethlehem that day, and they're all eating and drinking. And can you imagine if you went to one of their parties, <clears throat> the people who had the room in the inn, and knocked on the door and said, hey, guess what? Somebody really important is being born right now. In fact, they're going to cause traffic jams in places you've never heard of, like London and Paris and New York City and Philadelphia. And malls, which you've never heard of, are going to be filled with people buying all these gifts because of this one person who's being born. And if you said, guess who it is? They would have said, it's probably Caesar Augustus' wife is having a child, or Quirinus, or Pilate, some of these august rulers. Caesar Augustus, he gave himself that title, the, the Great One. He was the first one to say he was the Son of God. And yet, the light came, shepherds saw it, we're part of it. And it's come down to our day so much that the story I'm about to tell you can happen. I was on vacation last week. I was kind of fried from three months of leading and preaching I brought nothing to read, even though I like to read. I think I brought a Sports Illustrated and a book on fantasy football. That was about it. And uh, 
got to a house of someone in church, and on their coffee table was a book called The Great Good Thing by Andrew Clavin, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. An hour into my vacation, I read this book, couldn't stop reading it, read it in about a day. Fascinating. Uh, Andrew Clavin is a popular writer. I don't read fiction. He writes crime novels. Uh, they've been made in the movies with uh, Clint Eastwood and Michael Caine. And the thing I love about him, he's a secular Jew. Now, he said, if someone asked me, are you a Jew? He would say, I'm Jewish. <laughs> in other words, we celebrated Passover, but we never knew why. You know, kind of like I was Catholic, but I didn't know why. And uh, the thing I love about him, you, you can give this book away because, first of all, he's a great writer. Second of all, he's not like Christian writers where he's writing like a sappy story. Uh, he writes what everybody thinks. And he said, I was 49 years old, and I'm about to be baptized a Christian. No one could have been more surprised than I was. I never thought I was the type. I had been born and raised a Jew and lived most of my life as an agnostic. I believed in the fullest freedom of thought in the widest reaches of fact and philosophy. I believed in science and analysis and reasonable explanations. I had no time for magical thinking of any kind. I couldn't bear solemn piety. I despised even the ordinary varieties of willful blindness to the tragic shambles of life on earth. And as for what the philosophers once called the Christians' banal optimism, that forced praise, singing, cheer in the face of pain and disappointment, which we just spent 20 minutes doing, uh, and, it, and the idea of escaping death, how I hated it, he said it set his teeth on edge. I was, I am, a whirling by nature. I was delighted by the world. Christian talked about going to heaven. I wanted to stay here. I liked sunshines and trees and twittering bluebirds, but I also liked sex, money, gossip, a good single malt, the crooked hilarity of politics, the stuff novels were made of. So one night at six years old, in this book, he's recounting all the pegs God put in his life. This agnostic, secular Jew, six years old, his mother goes to work. It's the middle of the week. It's Christmas Eve. He goes to the neighbor's house he stayed over. It was a mixed neighborhood of Christians and Jews. And because it's Christmas Eve, he's going to stay over. And he was so excited, he writes, because he had always heard of Christmas celebrations. The cookies, the food. Uh, you watch movies, and you go to bed, and you wake up, and there's presents. What kid wouldn't like that? So he goes over, and they eat, and they watch a Christmas carol, and he's loving all the nostalgia and he goes into a room, and there's a picture of Jesus above his bed. And he said it scared the daylights out of him. Now, think about it. We're Christians. We've seen pictures of Jesus. But I guess for us, it would be like seeing Muhammad above your bed, right? And he says he was terrified. He put the covers over his head. And he went to sleep, and he prayed for morning. And he woke up, and he said the most amazing thing happened. He opened his eyes, and before running to get the gifts, he stared at the picture. He said how strange he was in that he was no longer frightening. He wasn't eerie or spooky or creepy, not at all. The morning light had dramatically transformed him. He seemed wholly benevolent to me, kind, powerful, protective. In fact, though his expression was, oh, so elevated and very, very serious indeed, I thought I now detected a touch of humor in the corners of his mouth, a secret mirth. 
is it was as if we shared a private joke together. It was as if we were both amused by the childish mistake I had made last night. In the darkness, I had been afraid that he was evil. At dawn, I realized he had been my friend, my guardian, my watchman all night long. He said he never got that out of his mind. He never forgot the Christmas celebration. He celebrated Christmas as an agnostic Jew for the rest of his life and counts this as one peg. All the nostalgia of Christmas that eventually brought him to his baptism and serving Christ. All because of December 25th. All because of one day. Was December 25th the day? The answer, you're not going to like it. It's the same answer about when's Jesus coming. No one knows, right? Can I give you arguments on both sides? Let's take about a minute. I'll give you arguments on both sides. The argument against, most of you know, <clears throat> Constantine becomes emperor in the 300s. He takes Saturnalia, which is the winter solstice celebration, which is full of debauchery. He makes it a Christian festival, and we have this thing called Christmas. Uh, there's the other idea. If you read Acts and the Epistles, 27 books of the New Testament, no one ever celebrates the birth of Christ not even the resurrection of Christ. Because Christ every day is risen in our hearts. And remember this, the early church was looking for the return of Christ. They didn't care when he was born. Paul said, we who are alive and remain, they thought they, that Jesus could come in their lifetime. But there are actually compelling arguments that it was December 25th. Uh, Thomas Talley has written a book called The Origins of the Liturgical Year. So after about 300 years when Jesus didn't come back, <clears throat> Christians looked at the Jews and said, wow, they had all these feast days. We should have a Christian calendar. And they began to put it together. And quite fascinating, there are many documents, and he details the many sermons uh, from that time that many believed December 25th was the actual day. Now, whether it was or not, it doesn't matter. The idea was the event happened. Christmas happened. God came into the world and a light came to Bethlehem. And again, this is the only religion that has ever touched the entire globe. It wasn't regional. Very quickly, it spread everywhere. Something that, that day that was so powerful, we changed the calendar. So when you wake up, on December 25th, it's the one day of the year. You don't have to ask your wife what day it is or what's the date. I was reading a, a Jewish person. They wrote an article, and they said, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, mad at people when they say Merry Christmas, even though I'm a Jew, because I celebrate the day too. I get up. I stay in my pajamas. I have a day off. I order Chinese food. That's my celebration. But I know it's December 25th. I don't care what Starbucks says. Everybody knows December 25th. Because when you wake up that day, December 25th, 2019, it is 2019 or 2019 years from an event that really took place where, again, God stepped into human history. There's two things I want you to remember this Christmas, no matter where you are. Some of you are abounding. Some of you are abasing. Some of you are abounding. You could be abasing tomorrow. But know this, we walk in light. God has pulled us out of darkness. Every so often we just need to look back like Paul did at our salvation story and say, God, 
You're amazing. You know, alcoholics look back and think, what the heck was I doing? Poisoning my body and drug addicts. What? I was spending all this money. People that were materialistic, none of this stuff meant anything to me. And you go down memory lane and you realize the great truth. It's an anchor to our soul. And then the second thing is to understand that we really are the light of the world. Peter talks about this so much in his epistles. He's so practical. He talks about what we have this inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, in heaven, reserved for us. That no one can ever take it away. No life circumstance. And he said, therefore, in light of this, be sober-minded. Put away filthy things. In other words, be holy as God is holy. In other words, let the light shine brighter that's in us. I'll close with this. I heard a story one time of a guy that was in New York City, and he went to St. Patrick's Cathedral. And he walked into St. Patrick's Cathedral, and it's lined with saints, marble statues of saints. And so he thought he'd find his saint, and he did. And in St. Patrick's, they went from real candles to, like, if you remember, if you were in the denomination I was in, they have those little lit-up candles, but to light it up, you got to put a quarter in. Put the quarter in, it lights up. And he found his saint, and he wanted to put the quarter in, but he looked, and the saint had a sign around his neck that said, shrine out of order. <laughs> and uh, the illustration is, sometimes that's what we look like. Sometimes that's what I look like, where there is no light because my shrine's out of order. And we all get out of order. And the beautiful thing is God brings us back and reminds us. And we open the scripture and we repent. And God puts us back on our feet. There should be no guilt and condemnation. But we confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us. And we read scripture and we get re-centered. And we come to church or we put on a song in the car. And, and, and you know, like, like Asaph said, you know, my foot almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But when I went to the house of God, everything made sense. That everything of this world's like chaff. It's going to blow away. But we have this anchor to our souls. Sure and steadfast, the down payment of the Holy Spirit. We are the light of the world.